Hello and welcome to The Rundown, a new podcast from Politics Home. I'm your host, Alan Tolhurst, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the biggest political stories with fellow Politics Home reporters and special guests from across Westminster. The government is once again at war with Whitehall, with plans to cut up to 91,000 civil service jobs to save money, with the aim to return to 2016 staffing levels within three years, prompting threats of strike action from unions. It is part of wider plans to shake up workplace culture as the economy tries to recover from the pandemic, with the Prime Minister critical of what he calls a post-Covid, work-from-home, manana culture at some public bodies. Meanwhile, Jacob Rees-Mogg, tasked with enforcing this new mantra, has been dropping into various departments and leaving notes on empty desks, a practice described by his own cabinet colleague Nadine Doris as Dickensian. Joining me this week to discuss that and more are three fantastic guests, starting with Susanna Brecknell, co-editor of our sister publication Civil Service World, Alex Thomas, programme director at the Institute for Government and a former civil servant himself, as well as Labour's Justin Matters, the Shadow Minister for Employment Rights and Protections. So starting with you, Susanna, can you just go through some of the plans that we saw first leaked in a letter from the head of the civil service last week about the government's plans to cut, I think it's up to about a fifth of the workforce in the next few years? It'll actually be quite quick because we haven't actually had much detail yet. There's been no formal ministerial announcement of, of this. As you suggest, we've just had leaks really and we've seen this letter from Simon Case, the Cabinet Secretary, asking permanent secretaries to work up plans as to how they will start cutting the headcount. So what we know from that and from briefings to the press is that we think it's going to start with a recruitment freeze, potentially even freezing the fast stream, which is their kind of graduate talent recruitment scheme. And we know that they are looking at things like central HR team. We know that they are kind of questioning all the roles across the civil service. The other thing that ties into it is that we previously had an announcement around reviewing public bodies, some might call them quangos, non-departmental public bodies and agencies, looking at them and trying to find efficiencies there. So all of it ties together, but we have not yet seen any kind of considered comprehensive plan as to actually where do they think they're going to find the ability to cut one in five civil servants over the next three years. Right and so this kind of figure of the one in five did it sort of come a bit out of the blue how's that gone down with various departments you think? It has gone down very badly as you would imagine and yes I think it's come pretty much out of the blue I mean they knew which way the wind was blowing we actually did an interview with the civil service chief operating officer Alex Chisholm the end of last month. And he was talking in that interview about the need to look at headcounts. And he used the quote, the civil service has become bigger than what is affordable. So they knew that this was coming. But the announcement of a specific number, this kind of talk about within the next few years, for that to be briefed out to the Daily Mail last Friday, my understanding is that most senior officials didn't really even know that was going to happen. And you saw the next day, a number of communications from permanent secretaries, top officials in departments to their staff, saying, you know, we understand this is surprising for you, we understand it's unsettling, we will give you details as soon as possible. The best way to describe it was damage limitation, that yeah. they didn't really know what was coming, they had to deal with this firestorm suddenly where their staff were being told, you're at risk of losing your job. Mm, Justin, what do you think about departments finding out in that way? It's not really kind of the way that you would expect an announcement like that to, to come out. What, what was kind of Labour's position when you saw this uh, this letter being published? Well, it, it, it reminds me a little bit of how P&O acted with their workers. And of course, the government were very quick to condemn that. So I think they should actually start listening to their own advice a bit more and um, treat the people who do incredibly difficult jobs with a little bit more respect. Now, to me, this seems like it's just a figure that's been plucked out of thin air and uh, hasn't actually got any detail behind it. I think we've just heard that actually it is about generating the newspaper headline rather than any strategic approach to the demands of government. And 
if you listen to my constituents, every element of the public sector is really struggling. Right. Uh, you've had, I'm sure, lots of coverage about the huge delays in the passport office. The same can be said for lots of other parts of HMRC, yeah, driving yeah, licenses, yeah, all, kind of all those things. It's pretty clear, actually, some departments are seriously overstretched. So the idea you can take a fifth off these departments and not have any more impact on service delivery is, is really just pie in the sky. Mm. Alex, what were, you, what were your thoughts when you heard uh, that kind of figure, obviously, with your cabinet office experience and your IFG hat on now? Yeah, I thought it's, it's going to be a tough use for the for the civil service. I also think there's a question of the extent to which this is a really, you know, sort of a credible, part of a credible programme of reform. And so how seriously, in that sense, we should take it and how far it's a part of the messaging the, the government wants to, wants to get across. I mean, the other sort of instinctive reaction was to think back to the spending review last autumn when broadly i'm simplifying it a bit but broadly the government said then they'd take the civil service back to pre-covid numbers over yeah. the next few years this then takes it back to pre-brexit numbers yeah. sort of the consequence of that is you think well what what more is the state doing since brexit and covid so absolutely there are efficiencies absolutely you know there's a there's a constant need to make sure that the civil service is performing as as efficiently and effectively as it as it can but there are additional functions following brexit there's a whole new department department for international trade there are new requirements at the border there's all the sort of there are a lot of new functions post brexit and as justin you were just saying there are a lot of post covid catch ups and resilience functions the state needs to do so this will involve kind of real choices and real cuts hmm. interesting and obviously it plays into a, a wider kind of criticism I think we've seen from government on, on the way the civil services has acted and perhaps not been as efficient as they wanted to during the, the pandemic and, and beyond. And there's been a lot of criticism recently of the kind of working from home culture and whether that they want to see more civil service back at their desks. As I understand it, there's a lot of departments where there simply isn't really the desk space. You know, there's some, I think, saying that they only have 0.3 desks per person. So this idea that you need to get people back in the office, I'm not sure it's sort of one that makes a lot of sense. So Zana, what, what are your kind of thoughts on that? Yeah, I think you've hit, well, one of the nails on the head there, which is that actually for the, the last five, six years, they've been working on this estate strategy where they are reducing the size of the offices, that they have reducing the number of desks to save money. Yeah. And a central part of that has been that actually there's an assumption a certain proportion will work from home or work in, in different remote locations. It kind of speaks to this point about actually are they seeking real reform and real efficiencies when they're talking about remote working, working from home, cutting jobs. If they were, they would be considering the overall picture around estates, the overall picture around how much money do you save by cutting headcount. You've, you've still got to do the things that you, government needs to do. You've still got to you know, pay redundancy settlements. You've still got to have talented people. So you, then it suggests that they're not thinking about this as an overall picture on actually how can we make government run better, but more looking for issues that will energise their base, form a wedge issue, get a headline. But it's kind of interesting because I think it plays into this idea that everyone's annoyed about working from home culture. And actually, I know for a lot of people, it seems to be one of the actual benefits of, of, of the lockdown was actually the ability to move into flexible working. And the government was quite in favour of flexible working for a while. And obviously, it looked as though there was going to be an employment bill formalising the legal process of, of working from home and, and flexible working. And obviously that, that didn't come in the Queen's speech. What were your kind of thoughts when you saw that? Well, I think it's, it's yet another broken promise. The government have made over 20 commitments to introduce an employment bill, some of which would have dealt with the issue of flexible working and working from home, but also a whole range of other issues that have come out of the Taylor report, which looked at uh, insecure work, which is now over five years old, and only a fraction of the recommendations in there have been implemented. I think it just shows that for this government, they are not particularly interested in strengthening workplace rights. And so would, would Labour, if you were to be in government, 
an employment bill containing those sort of things would be high up on your agenda? Oh, uh, we've got a very good green paper which sets out a comprehensive set of uh, reforms to the labour market. We tackle fire and rehire zero-hour contracts, insecure working, flexible working. It's actually a very comprehensive and important set of uh, policies that we've got and I think we're going to have to do them more because I don't think this government is going to do a tap on it. Mm. Obviously the government's talked about levelling up outside of London and, and one of the ways that has been suggested is actually to move some of the civil service functions outside of Whitehall and put stuff in other cities. Obviously then having everyone have to come back to SW1 doesn't really play into that. So, you know, Alex, do you kind of understand how those sort of policies fit together really? Yeah, I mean, well, it, it goes to Susanna's point about this not necessarily being a kind of coherent programme of reform yet, I say, trying to give them the benefit of the doubt. There is a lot of energy, actually, around some of the moves out of London, the Darlington campus with the Treasury and other departments. Everyone I talk to who either works there or is involved in that raves about it. So it's a really good thing. So there is, you know, there's good stuff here. I think how that plays into the working from home debate is interesting because people can still be in the office and not be in London. You know, there, yeah. are, there are offices outside of London. So you can move people out, out of London and still encourage them into the office. But if what you're trying to do is encourage people to live in a broader range of places, to come from a broader range of places, you need that flexibility to you know, work from different locations, come together when you need to, and work from home when you need to. I'm, I mean, I'm not naive about some of the kind of political war on the state type points that Susanna was talking about. But I suppose the frustration for me here comes that there's just... It's good to get people back to the office. It's good to move people out of London. You know, we're all sitting here together in a room, and that's fantastic. Yeah, uh, just in case Jacob Rees-Mogg is listening, we are actually all we together. Are physically, yeah. Yeah. Uh, we're in, and that's great. But if you genuinely wanted to encourage civil servants and others in other offices back into physical locations to get the benefits of creativity and career development and build, building relationships, this very antagonistic approach doesn't seem to me to be the right way to do it. Yeah, I would absolutely echo that, Alex. I think there's a real energy behind the you know places for growth agenda as they badge it. When I speak to them, that is the reform agenda that they want to come back to all the time. They see the benefits of being able to diversify the people they bring into the civil service, of being able to be closer to local communities. So that's what makes it so frustrating that that will be un- could be undermined by a politically motivated briefings or leadership. And I think the other point around coming back to the office, so we ran a story a few weeks ago around DfE morale being, as the source said, at an all-time low mm. around efforts to force people back into the office. But the underlying problem was not that people minded coming back into the office. They're you know happy to do that, but they want it to be driven based on the organisational needs and the individual needs and where is my role best done? What they've perceived was that actually we're being forced back into the office to meet a political agenda. And that was what was really frustrating them rather than them thinking I want to stay at home so that I can slack off. The other thing I really worry about, and I think it could turn into a serious problem for this and future governments, is the skills base of the civil service. If you're a policy civil servant like I used to be, there isn't really anywhere else you can go. You, you You need to work for the government or sort of, you know, associated government adjacent activity. If you've got digital skills, commercial skills, if you're an expert in procurement, you are highly marketable and there are companies who will employ you who will offer the flexibility. So one of the real dangers here, as well as the points Susanna was making, is that we see a hollowing out of the civil service, but of the skills that are really, really needed for government Mm. in the next part of the 21st century. And how have the unions broadly reacted to a lot of this kind of stuff? Do you think strike action is likely or, or not? I think it probably depends on the union. There are some civil servants unions that are more inclined towards striking. One positive piece of news or positive development is that we saw yesterday the unions were saying that cabinet officers agreed those who 
would be made redundant in the next few years would be made redundant under 2010 terms, which basically is a more generous form of redundancy package than was subsequently negotiated. So we've seen some kind of good news there, I guess, and that may have pacified is the wrong word, but that may make unions feel a bit more at ease about this. Certainly we had a piece from the the prospect union this week basically saying nothing's off the table. And they are not one of the unions that is most likely to strike. So for them to be saying, actually, nothing's off the table here, there's definitely a great deal of anger. I do hope the government learns the lessons from the previous period of retrenchment, which was from broadly from 2010 to 2014, 15, which took the civil service down to this number that Jacob Rees-Mogg wants to get back to. And there are you know, a number of points that you could reflect on from that period, one being that it's very easy for the wrong people to leave and the wrong people to stay, which goes back to the point about skills that I was saying. If you do have sort of generous exit packages that's great but that also creates incentive structure for people to go off and do different careers and there's also a sort of a question about you know the grade balance uh, as well as the skills balance who stays and how stays if you have really strict headcount targets at the same time as you have strict budget targets those sort of interplay in odd ways and so creates there are all sorts of very technical incentives that will be created inside the civil service from having some of these stretching targets as you make decisions based on whether cutting that person or getting rid of that person is financially more beneficial than getting rid of yeah. someone who's on less money, even though they might be more useful in going forward. Yeah. That sort of stuff. I mean, you could argue that if what the government wants is a more efficient state, focus on budgets and money. Don't worry so much about headcount. And Justin, obviously, they want to go back to those kind of pre-Brexit headcounts. Obviously, given the fact that you know we're still obviously in, in negotiations over parts of the Brexit deal, we're still lots of things undecided. And obviously, the, the pandemic saw a big increase in the civil service. Do you think going down to those levels is really sustainable, really, for the government? Well, I think history shows you when a government sets a sets an arbitrary target that sooner or later reality catches up and they have to they have to change tack. The employment market is pretty competitive at the moment, and if this isn't done in the right way, you will you will lose a lot of talented people, take things too far, and and find that the political pressure means that actually you end up recruiting. Uh, more people back in in the long run, which makes it, of course, more expensive. Yeah, sure. And there's been obviously with lots of reporting on the various backlogs in things like justice, education and healthcare. Actually, there's a good argument that actually you, you need to increase your kind of skills base and employment base to try and deal with those things, right? Yeah. And actually, you've got to have a have a long term plan and a strategy. And actually, it's important for those who work in, in these bodies to understand what the government's strategy is, what they're trying to achieve. And actually, at the end of it, it's got to be about more than just an arbitrary headcount. It's got to be about, are we able to deliver better services uh, for better value for money? There are two really interesting examples. One is DEFRA, the Environment and Agriculture Department, before Brexit. So DEFRA reduced in size dramatically in the run-up to Brexit and then had to dramatically increase in size after Brexit. Same thing happened with the Department of Health, which reduced in size before the pandemic and now obviously has has grown an awful lot. In one sense, that's fine. That's the civil service and the, the state responding to the demands of the day. But it does mean, as Justin was just saying, you lose people with skills and experience and knowledge. And so there's a really kind of fine balance there. Yeah. One of the things interesting is in this sort of attack on, on working from home, we saw Boris Johnson suggesting that, you know, if you work from home, that you get up and you make a coffee, then you walk slowly back to your desk and then you go to the, the fridge and you cut a tiny little wedge 
wedge of cheese and you go back to your office. I felt that was perhaps more reflective of his own feelings on working working from home. And I don't know about your experience of the past few years. Do you think, you know, this idea of working from home that people are less productive and and less able to do their job, I feel like that's probably an argument that's that's been lost, do you think? I don't think there's any real evidence of that. And and, uh, obviously Boris Johnson's home is literally his office, which probably goes a long way to explain why the country's in such a mess if that is how he, he approaches every day. But we should also remember, actually, there are millions of people in jobs that you can't do from home. Yeah. And those people are really excluded from this debate. I think the future is going to be hybrid working, really. I think there's going to be a balance struck between people able to do things in the comfort of their own home efficiently, but also have some time in the office, mixing with colleagues, swapping ideas, working together as a team. I think there's absolutely no reason why can't move forward like that and there is some evidence to suggest actually you are more productive when you do things that way so reducing it to an arbitrary work from home or work in the office debate which is nice for a headline I think really just ignores the the reality of how the workplace is changing I have definitely eaten more cheese over the last two and a bit <laughs> yeah well, that, the, the notches on my belt that's yeah. perhaps a separate point in that today's obesity report I think probably yeah, highlights that but obviously you know I think a lot of it comes down to a lot of surveys suggest that people have you know are happy and a happier workforce is probably a higher performing one though it's quite interesting that Oliver Dowden conference last year said that people need to get off their pelotons and back to their desks and I think it turned out that the permanent secretary at his department actually had a, a peloton and stuff and so do you think there's that kind of divide between ministers and, and the senior civil servants how do you think that's going to sort of play out do you think? I think I would be wary of saying that there's a divide between all senior civil servants right. and all ministers but I think what is frustrating, I think Alex and I have both referred to it, is that the civil service senior leaders, they are not against reform. They want to reform government to improve outcomes for citizens. They want to be efficient and they understand that their role is to enact government's policies. What ministers don't seem to understand is that the civil service wants to do that and ministers seem to feel that the way to achieve their aims is to belittle their civil servants, whether it's by making these kind of jokes out of actually that came from the permanent secretary was talking about the kind of the well-being benefits Mm. of working at home. And she was sort of, you know, being a good leader and talking to her staff about actually, because we're at home, we can be more flexible about making sure that we take time from our day to look after our well-being. She was not saying she spends every day on the peloton when she should be working. Yeah. And for that to be taken out of context and used against her, a really well-respected senior civil servant, is kind of indicative of this idea that actually we get our outcomes by bashing our workforce, which no private sector leader would ever try to do. Alex and his colleagues did a really interesting paper a few weeks ago around actually some fundamental reforms that should be done to the, to the civil service. And I wrote about the last round of austerity and reform that was driven by the coalition government and Francis Maud He wasn't universally loved, but people agreed that what he was trying to do made sense Mm. and that it did largely drive efficiencies, a lot of it, and that it was beneficial for the civil service. Now, when you see some of those reforms being unpicked, i.e. the centralisation of HR functions, you kind of understand that it's not about reform for a positive reason. And that, I think, is the tension. It's not what senior civil servants want. It's what ministers seem to think will achieve their aims. Yeah, there's a story in The Telegraph uh, on Thursday saying that ministers have discovered (laughs) that there are 700 (laughs) civil servants uh, in a a single government department working in human resources. And I think Gary Graham from from Prospect was sort of saying, well, this this is what the government had previously done to put those uh, HR functions together. There was a point behind it. So you talked about, Francis Moore, there was perhaps a coherent policy agenda behind that. that There was an understanding of what was being attempted. It feels at the moment there isn't much of that, essentially, from the government so far. It's fine for a minister to come in and say, actually, I don't think this is the right way of doing things, or this is duplicating things in the centre. We should give departments more autonomy and freedom. That's all okay, And no doubt there are efficiencies that could be made. It's not going to get you 91,000 headcount reduction, though. These are small numbers. If you're talking about duplication of 
of functions like that. The civil servants are pretty thick-skinned. They're used to being whipping boys and girls for the ministers. This is, to an extent, this is par for the course. Yes, it annoys civil servants, but you know, so be it. That's sort of what you sign up for. There's a sort of confluence of things coming together that I would worry is just starting to hit hit morale, not because of the politics and the rhetoric, people understand that, but because it's sort of internally contradictory or counterproductive or not always seen as being done with the interests of a better, more effective institution at heart. Yeah, definitely. There's another interesting story, basically, as part of this kind of what Jacob Smog was called the sort of shortening of the working week, but everyone else will say it was just sort of a more hybrid model. Apparently, bar and restaurant owners say that Wednesday is the new Thursday. So um, <laughs> obviously, I've, I've only got, I've, I've got a five-week-old baby at home, so I'm not mm-hmm. really going out at all at the moment. But Justin, do you think that there's kind of a, you're seeing that the, the shift in perhaps the way that um, you know, the kind of hospitality and other industries are, are retooling or, or refocusing based on on kind of different patterns and behaviours. You know, it's actually it's an important thing that needs to be done. It's not just sort of simply let's just focus on everyone being nine to five, Monday to Friday, and, and go that way. Well, I think any market has got to sort of adapt to what uh, is is happening in in the world. And yeah, I, I think I've read that report that. Uh, Thursday is a new Friday and Wednesday is a new Thursday. It's all, all, yeah. getting, all getting a bit, bit confusing. I know. I would say many members of the government don't know what day it is, and and that uh, that is that is understandable. Um, well, you're an MP. You don't work yeah, Fridays, anyway. You, yeah, you, know, you don't work. You I, work. I work. I work very hard every, every, every day. Of, every day of the week. Um, I, I go back to actually when when I was working in the private sector before I was elected. I used to work in the centre of Manchester. I used to commute from Ellesmere Port every day. That was three hours yeah. plus every day. And I think back now. How different would my life have been? How much better would I have been at my job and my other things if actually I could have had some of that time back to spend on myself, to spend on my family, to actually do a little bit more work? And the idea that you have to be chained to your desk Monday to Friday, nine to five, is, I think, it's outdated. It doesn't work. And I don't think there is any evidence to show that that is the future. And I I think the more that ministers try and create catchy headlines by, by fighting against this, the more out of touch they look. Yeah, just go back to one thing you said at the start. You know, obviously a lot of civil servants were blindsided by this, and it was sort of you said it was like the way that PO treated their workers. You know, do you think that, that the government has done enough actually on the sort of PO stuff to actually prevent other further bosses doing that sort of thing in the future? Or do you think more needs to be done on protecting workers' rights and employment law? Absolutely. I think um, there's a whole range of things that we would say are a priority, and if uh, there's a Labour government, they would be enacted within the first 100 days. Keir Starmer's made that a clear priority. If you look at fire and rehire, for, for example, which yeah. is kind of what happened with, with P&O, that's still happening in lots of companies up and down the country, and the government have made a few noises about bringing in some guidance, but actually they're not taking the necessary legislative steps to to outlaw it, which is what we say needs to happen. Because actually, when you think about it, if you look at someone who's worked at the same company for 20 years, and they're told, if you don't take a 20% pay cut or whatever, next month you'll be dismissed without any compensation or legal recourse. You've got to say that's not an acceptable way to treat anyone at, at any time, certainly not in the 21st century. So we really have to move forward and actually ensure that people are treated with a little bit more respect in the workplace. Yeah, absolutely. Which is not to say there aren't inefficient, ineffective people in the civil service. So yeah. Again, just to add a sort of little bit of balance in this, and, it, and it's nothing frustrates the good civil servants more than colleagues who aren't pulling their weight or, or whatever. I'm sure, I think it's a small minority, but I'm sure there were people during the pandemic who were taking advantage of working from home or, or elsewhere. You know, so there is a constant question about civil service performance and the effectiveness of the civil service. As Susanna said, we're, you know, it's, that's our meat and drink at the Institute for Government. And so, yes, ministers are absolutely right. The energy around this agenda is a good thing, which makes it even more frustrating that you know, when you look at it coldly, it, it might be counterproductive. So I think the energy around the agenda is not actually reflecting 
what the official government reform agenda is. So, yeah. they, you know, they released last year this declaration on government reform signed up by ministers and perm sex, which set out a programme of reform. Um, yeah, you can critique good. that, but actually what's happening now is not forwarding that agenda, which civil servants are motivated and energised about as far as anyone would be motivated about constant organisational change. But, you know, that is a comprehensive programme which is not being driven forward by the political moves of the day. Hmm. Interesting, right. Well, we'll have to leave it there. I've got to date with some cheese and a peloton by <laughs> so. But you can read more on the biggest political stories at politicshome.com and by subscribing to our newsletters, clicking on the link in the top right corner of the website. Thanks so much to our fantastic guests, Susanna Brecknell, Alex Thomas and Justin Maddis. Our editor has been Laura Silver. Thank you for listening and please subscribe wherever you get your podcast to keep up to date. If you've enjoyed it, then please leave us a review. If you want to get in touch, reach out to us on Twitter at politicshome or email us via news at politicshome.com. But for now, have a great weekend and be sure to listen again next week. I've been Alan Tolhurst and this has been The Rundown.